Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus. Due to technical difficulties, the first few minutes of Alan's sermon were not recorded. The audio begins as Alan is reading verse 19 of the scripture passage for this morning's sermon. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thanks to God for his holy and inspired and inerrant word. Let's Ask his assistance now in prayer. Father, we pray that you would open to us the word of God. Father, how we need it, how we need to hear from you. Lord, we hear all kinds of voices, all kinds of opinions, all kinds of information that bombard us through the week. And Father, when we open the word of God, we read the word of God. And pray now, Lord, that we might hear that word preached. Father, attend its preaching by your Holy Spirit to save, to sanctify. Father, we pray that you would feed our souls on the food of the word. And Father, we worship and glorify you in the hearing of your word. And we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. We arrive now at the final verses of this section in Ephesians where Paul has been writing about the, the people of God and especially focusing on the unity of the body of Christ, that there is only one people of God, there is only one church, and while there is a great deal of diversity in that church, uh, lots of diversity then and now, perhaps foundationally for Paul, the diversity of Jew and Gentile now in one people and every other category by which you could place people, divide people, uh, all of that is now uh, bridged, brought together by the overriding and transcending unity that is ours in Christ. A bond that transcends every way that you could possibly divide humans into categories, every hostility that might exist between people, between peoples, whatever it might be, this is a unity in Christ that can bridge the gap, the deepest divides that humanity can come up with. We've seen in chapter 2 how Gentiles were outsiders to Israel, and that was true historically in the Old Testament, outsiders to the covenants that God made with Israel and gave to Israel. And yet we have to understand as we look at the Bible, as we read the Bible, that Israel in the Old Testament was not an end in itself. It was a beginning. It was uh, a beachhead You think of the Normandy landings and attaining the beachhead in Normandy through which uh, forces and uh, material and everything began going into Europe in the fight against uh, Nazi Germany. But the beachhead was key. Well, Israel in the Old Testament was a beachhead. It was a foot in the door 
by which God enters into the world and the kingdom enters in and begins spreading throughout all the earth. After all, God told Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. Even early on, envisioning the day that this blessing to Abraham would would extend to the peoples of the world and through his descendants and through his descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now in Christ, as Paul has been writing, as we've been studying this, the Gentiles who were far off, who were the outsiders, have been brought near. They weren't merely brought near to be included in Old Testament Israel, as though Old Testament Israel was going to go on the way it always was, and now Gentiles can be brought in. That's not it at all. Paul makes it very clear uh, that we're not just pouring new wine into old wineskins, to use Jesus' metaphor. It wouldn't work. But rather, as we've seen, in Christ, both Jew and Gentile believers are brought together into, to use Paul's expression, one new man. One new man. Singular, we're a new, new in Christ. I like the NIV's rendering, uh, one new humanity. A new people brought together in Christ. Because a Christian isn't just a person improved. A Christian is a person reborn. Regenerated radically different from what we were before. A citizen of heaven, a citizen of the age to come, yet living here in this present age. Uh, A number of the men have been in the study of J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. And in that book, Machen describes Jesus as a supernatural person, being the God-man. And he was... But it's also true of you and me, if we're believers, if we're in Christ Jesus, that in a a very real sense, we are supernatural people. We've we've died and we've been raised to new life in Jesus. And so you can't just take Gentiles and put them in the old wineskins of Old Testament Israel, but rather the two form this new humanity now in the new covenant, now that Christ has come, now that the Spirit has been given. So we arrive here at this last section, which is kind of where Paul sums up. The clue to that is his words, so then. In other words, so here's kind of the net result of it all. And Paul likes that expression, so then. He uses it frequently. He uses it here. Um, He doesn't just describe us, but he uses three images that communicate to us something about who we are now in Christ, who we are together. First thing he says in verse 19, we are citizens. The first image he uses is that of citizens. We are citizens of God's kingdom. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So Paul begins here by reminding us where we came from. We were strangers. We were aliens. The words are pretty much synonymous. You know, a Jew could go into Israel, but he was not of Israel. Uh, And even worse than being a stranger to Israel, he was a stranger to God, unless they trusted in God, believed in God. And there was a path even in the Old Testament, a proselyte, someone could convert to Judaism, a male undergoes circumcision, so forth. Uh, But the same would be true of anyone who's not a Christian today. Someone may be in the church, but not of the church. It's possible to be even on the role of a church and yet not actually be born again, not actually be regenerate. Hopefully everyone is, but 
may not be. But because of Jesus, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. No longer. That was the past. That's the old. And the new has come. Paul says we were far off, but we've been brought near. And the former alien, the former foreigner, has become what? Has become a citizen. Fellow citizens with the saints. What does being a citizen mean? Well, it means you're an insider. It means you belong. It means you have certain rights and privileges. As an American citizen, it means you can vote. And uh, we congratulate Rio on recently becoming an American citizen and, uh, and voting with us. Uh, so being a citizen means you're in. It means you're part of things. It means you have certain rights. The, the relationship changes. And I can't help but think uh, of Paul writing about citizenship that he had in mind his own Roman citizenship, which you know, if you know the New Testament, comes into play at different times. So think of the book of Acts where uh, there was a mob who was trying to get at Paul, uh, trying to destroy him because the rumor had been spread that Paul took a Gentile into areas of the temple where Gentiles were absolutely not to go. And the Roman soldiers rescue Paul from being torn apart by this mob that was out, out to get him. And, and Paul, when things kind of were under control, asked for an opportunity to speak to the crowd. You can read about this in Acts. And he gets up and he begins speaking to them and talking about the Old Testament and what God was doing and had a pretty, pretty uh, attentive audience until he got to the point where he said that God had sent him to the Gentiles. Well, that set it off. They begin roaring again, calling for his death and so forth. The soldiers decide Paul must be some sort of rabble-rouser, some troublemaker that so many people are upset with him. And so they're going to question him under duress. And so they bind him and tie him down and they're going to flog him. So they have him stretched out. The whip is at the ready. It's just about to tear into his back when at the last second, Paul seemingly calmly asks a question. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Where you can almost hear the screech as things you know, skid to a stop. You know, as they, they come to a halt quickly, the centurion uh, goes to the tribune and says, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. Well, as it turned out, and there's more to it, Paul was not whipped. And in fact, we read that the tribune was afraid because while he didn't whip Paul, he had bound a free, uncondemned Roman citizen. And they're very apologetic. Well, Roman citizenship has its privileges. And Paul, as we see, wasn't afraid to claim them and use them and be protected by them as the need arose. Well, how much more so privileges that go with citizenship in the kingdom of God, access to God in prayer, the sacraments, the fellowship, the word, the covenants. I mean, Paul speaks of the privileges in Romans 9 of all that Israel enjoyed in the old covenant. How much more we now in the new covenant Sins forgiven and removed, reconciled to God. All of these things that come about by the entrance into the kingdom, by becoming a citizen in the kingdom of God, and that is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus who lived the sinless life we haven't, who died bearing the sins of all who would believe in him on the cross, 
bearing what they deserved, suffering that so we who believe wouldn't have to, and now reconciled to God, citizens of his kingdom. But notice Paul doesn't just call us citizens. We are a fellow citizen, a citizen among other citizens in the kingdom of God. That is, with the saints, citizens along with other Christians. The word saints in the Bible just refers to Christians, the holy ones, holy in Christ Jesus. Not super Christian, but every Christian. Now, there are times when Paul talks about uh, the Christian as the individual. He does talk about that. But far more often, Paul talks about Christians connected, Christians as part of the church, Christians corporately, part of the body, the corpus, the body of Christ. Uh, In fact, the concept of a Christian in isolation is almost unknown to Paul. We're citizen, yes, but fellow citizens along with other citizens. Paul uses another image here, first of all, that of a citizen in the kingdom of God, but he uses another image, and that is that we are, second, we are members of God's household. That is, we're part of the family. We're citizens in the kingdom, but we're also members of the family of God, the household of God. Now, Paul doesn't dwell too much on that here. He certainly does in other places. Think of Romans 8, uh, where Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you, Christian, have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So Paul speaks of this in other places, as does the apostle John. I love in in 1 John chapter 3, John's... um, now an old man, uh, writing the, the first, second, third John, much older, uh, much farther along in life. But you pick up on his joy and almost giddiness as he thinks about being a child of God, as he contemplates this relationship. First John 3, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You know, that is what we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, as in this life, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. So it's just this joy, this delight in being a child of God, children of God together. So it's a great thing to be a citizen in the kingdom. It's an even better thing to be a member of the family. And we are members of God's family, of the household. We have many brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room, across our uh, city and state and our nation and around the world, meeting even today to worship the Lord. Uh, Jesus is our elder brother. He is the eternally begotten of the Father. And we are brought in as God's adopted children into his family as as the scriptures say, heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus wanted to have brothers and sisters in the family of God. And it was a source of joy for him to win through his own life and death and resurrection 
others to share in the joy of the family. So fellow citizens is one image. Members of the family, the household, is a second image. And then Paul uses a third image here uh, in verses 20 through 22, uh, dwells on this a little more at length. And that is, we are parts of God's temple. We are parts of God's temple. We're citizens, we're members of the family, but we're also part of the house, members of the household, but also part of the building of God's house. Now, we don't want to fault Paul for mixing metaphors here, but he does. The imagery changes from a household, you know, a family, the people, to the house itself, the structure, as the first, verse, uh, first word of verse 20 indicates, built, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, notice several things here I point out to you. One is the word built, passive. Who's doing the building? Well, it's a divine passive. God is the builder, or we could say Jesus is. Jesus said, I will build my church. But we recognize that the the building of the church, the building of this temple is the work of God. So that's one thing to notice. Another thing to notice, God is building his temple, the church, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's some discussion amongst the scholars whether apostles and prophets are two groups. If you read in the New Testament, you do see there were apostles, you do see reference to prophets, or whether they were one and the same, and the apostles in their prophetic capacity of declaring, thus says the Lord, or this is the, the word of God. Uh, which is really taken up in the preaching of the word. We have God's revealed word in scripture now. So preaching is taken that thus says the Lord, even as uh, we take what he's already said in scripture and declare that today. But at any rate, they are the foundation. Apostles and prophets are the foundation. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 3, you might be a little troubled by that because there Paul says... Jesus is the foundation and the only one that has been laid. So what gifts? Is Paul forgetting what's going on here? Well, no. Uh, Remember, Paul is just using imagery. He's using metaphors, and the metaphor can change from one place to another. It's, It's the underlying truth that matters, not the picture or metaphor that's used to communicate it, which metaphors can be mixed, can be fluid, even as they are here in this passage. In 1 Corinthians 3, he's saying Jesus is the foundation. He's laid down the foundation with his life and death and resurrection. You know, that's the foundation. And then church planters, missionaries, and even Christians are building on that with their lives, with their service. And uh, you may recall, Paul says, if they build with good materials, gold and silver and precious jewels, that will stand the assessment. If they build with wood, hay, and straw, then that'll get burned up. He does say they themselves will be saved, but as through fire. Why are they saved? Because they're on the foundation, which is Jesus. So it changes a little bit. Here he's saying that God is doing the building, and he's building it on the foundation of the prophets, the apostles and the prophets, which I would take to mean they're they're preaching and teaching. Uh, right, which is what you see in, in the New Testament, the good deposit of apostolic 
teaching, taking all that Jesus did and giving the divinely inspired understanding and interpretation of it. What does the cross mean? What did the empty tomb mean? Well, that's what we find as they declare what all that meant. Um, we see a similar idea, by the way, uh, to what Paul's saying here in Revelation 21, 14, you know, the new Jerusalem. Some of your Bibles may still kind of want to fall open to Revelation from our series in that not too long ago. Uh, Revelation 21, 14 says the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, so in Paul's metaphor here, they're the foundation. However, even so, Jesus Christ has, uh, has the primary place as the, 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 the place of preeminence, as the cornerstone. He here is the cornerstone, and that's a, a rich image that Paul uses. We see it, for example, in Psalm 118, 22. He draws from there, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, right? The, the, and we see that, Jesus' life, the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as an imposter, when in fact, he was the very center, the very heart of what God was doing, the cornerstone. It appears in Isaiah 28, 16, uh, Jesus himself Mark 12 uh, quotes that. It was picked up and used in the early church. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone as the early church began suffering persecution for their following Jesus and preaching his name. And so as the cornerstone, Jesus has the place of honor as the rest of the building would be built upon and lined up with, oriented to the cornerstone that Metaphor shows how each of us is established in Jesus. Each of us is fitted into Jesus and with Jesus and finds our place in the church in our relationship to Jesus. And so that's the point of this cornerstone. And with that in mind, the third thing I want you to notice that it is uh, with Jesus as the cornerstone that this church is joined together. Suppose you tried to build a building but all the studs were magnetic. By the way, we, these are still studs in this building. Suppose they were magnetic, and you tried to put them together, and they immediately repelled each other. And you start putting bricks up, and the bricks repel each other. They won't stay together. Well, you need to join them together. And they're joined with, with, with screws and bolts and, and mortar. Well, in this temple that Paul is describing, they're joined together in Jesus. Jesus is what holds it together. Uh, in whom? And that is in Jesus. Uh, Paul, that's so characteristic of Paul that everything is in Jesus. The in whom is in Jesus. That we are defined by our union to Christ. Our salvation is dependent upon our union with Christ. That's why we're supernatural people. We've died with him and been raised up with him. You know, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Well, Paul wasn't there. He wasn't one of those on the cross with Jesus. That's not what he means. He means he's united to Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Even as he's writing this letter. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our union with Christ is what joins us together. It's what accomplishes the unity in diversity that is the Christian church. And so we are joined together in Jesus, fellow citizens in the kingdom, brothers and sisters in the family of God, and now stones packed closely together 
in unity, forming the temple where God dwells. And then notice fourth, that this building is growing, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, a building can grow as pieces are added, but I think Paul is thinking more organically here. Literal bricks, literal stones don't grow. I mean, they're the size they are. They're not living. They don't grow. We're not rocks. We're not bricks. We're people. And so, you know, perhaps Peter's beautiful description, we are living stones, living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And this is one more place where Paul's metaphor is admittedly strained a little bit. Uh, As one writer uh, puts it, he says, there must be the thought of organic growth. The stones are living stones. And to express this uh, description of the church as a living body is preferable. You know, that we are alive as a church. But the metaphor of the building has not yet been exhausted, and we'll see that. And what is probably the chief reason for the use of a building or a temple has not yet been expressed. But it will be, and we'll see that in a minute. I've sometimes wondered if uh, the apostles had access to a microscope and could see cells. If they wouldn't have described us as cells. Because cells are little building blocks, but they're alive. They're living And so we are like cells in the body of Christ. And we're growing, not just by adding more stones, but we ourselves are growing. Each stone grows in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, to use Peter's expression. And then the fifth thing, notice that this building is, in fact, a temple. Verse 22, In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by Uh, I think maybe preferable, in the Spirit. Part of God's covenant relationship with His people always involved His presence. I will be with you. I will dwell in your midst. And in the Old Testament, that happened through the tabernacle and later the permanent temple that was built in Jerusalem. And the sacrifices were a way of mediating the presence of a holy God in the midst of a sinful people. Sin was dealt with symbolically by the death of the sacrificial animals. Of course, all that pointed to Jesus. And Jesus came, and Jesus described himself as the temple. Why? Because he was God, present in the midst of his people. Emmanuel, God with us. No longer in the building, but in the flesh. But then Jesus left, right? Ascended to the right hand of the Father. How is he with us today? Well, he gave us Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of God dwelling with and in the midst of his people today. Now, we often think of the Spirit dwelling in the individual believer, and that's true. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, so we should glorify and honor God with our bodies. But before that, in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about God dwelling in the midst of his people as a group. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is taking exception to the Corinthian believers' division over their favorite leader, right? You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, well, I follow Jesus, you know. And they're divided, not united. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, I'm going to read this as it really is. Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are that temple. By the way, that's a quotation from the New Standard South Mississippi English translation, <laughs> which properly reflects that the you is plural in each instance. Paul says, you all together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in the individual believer, but he also dwells in the body as a whole, God dwelling in the midst of his people. And so there's these three images that Paul uses to demonstrate, to, to illustrate the unity in diversity that is the church. Yes, we thank God for all our different backgrounds and perspectives and whatever it might be. But we know that we are united together in something that transcends all of that and will last forever, and that is who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of one kingdom. We're members of one family. We're all parts of one temple, the dwelling place of God. No two of us are alike. But in Christ, we are all united into the one. And there's only one people of God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, how our world needs the church to be the church. Lord, to demonstrate unity in diversity, unity even in disagreement. Father, we pray uh, for ourselves here at Old Peachtree that we would reflect that unity and diversity very well. But we pray that, Father, for the PCA. We pray that for your church throughout the world. Thank you, Father, for what you've done. Thank you that we are all of these things in Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.